Wonderful. Let me say good morning again, just in case you didn't hear me the previous time. It's, uh, it's good to be able to, on a day like this, come together. And uh, it actually, it's, isn't it interesting? It makes a difference when the weather is getting better. But spring is in the air, and it's, it's good. We're continuing our journey in the Gospel of Luke, looking at Jesus. And this morning, we're getting to a very tricky passage. I won't, uh, won't lie to you. It's, uh, it's a really challenging passage. But one that is very, very necessary for us to delve into and look at. And uh, it's, uh, it's 49 years ago this year that uh, a very controversial movie came out. Um, and uh, it created a lot of waves uh, for two particular reasons. Uh, it created a lot of controversy particularly because Christians were very offended by its uh, blasphemous sort of uh, undertones. But probably it created more of a reaction from everybody around simply because it was incredibly scary. And it remains to this day probably one of the most frightening movies ever made. William Friedkin uh, directed a movie and... uh, In a recent uh, issue of Vanity Fair, he gave an interview, because obviously it's coming up to 50 years since he was released. So they went trying to find him and ask him some questions about it. And one of the interesting parts of the interview is uh, the sort of his journey in terms of the supernatural, and particularly what can be described as demonic supernatural that is there because some of you are trying to guess the movie. I'm not saying the title on purpose because the youth are in. So um, Friedkin was actually an agnostic, so he wasn't a Christian, he wasn't a believer. And uh, really, um, as I said, a few years ago, he traveled to Italy to watch a real exorcism. And uh, then he returned to the United States and showed the footage that he had taken from the exorcism to some of the world's leading neurosurgeons and researchers, um, some people in California and some prominent psychiatrists in New York. And after watching the video, um, one of the specialists, Dr. Neil Martin, the chief of neurosurgery at UCLA Medical Center, said this, there is a major force at work within the lady, the lady that had the exorcism performed on her, I don't know the underlying origin of it. This doesn't seem to be hallucinations. It doesn't look like schizophrenia or epilepsy. I've done thousands of surgeries on brain tumors, traumatic brain injuries, etc. And I haven't seen this kind of consequence from any of those disorders. This goes beyond anything I have ever experienced. That's for certain. Dr. Itzhak Fried, a neurosurgeon and clinical specialist in epilepsy and seizure disorder, said this, it looks like something very authentic. She looks like a caged animal. I don't think there's a loss of consciousness or contact. I believe everything originates in her brain. So which part of the brain could this serve this type of behavior? Can I characterize it? Maybe. Can I treat it? No. And Friedkin was very surprised by the findings of this specialist, these neurosurgeons and psychiatrists. And this is what he said in the interview. I expected them to to come out and say, this is all crazy. It is not possible for this woman to be possessed by Satan. But they somehow seem to be baffled 
on how to define her ailment. I went to these doctors and specialists to try to get a rational scientific explanation for what I had experienced. I thought they would say, this is some sort of a psychosomatic disorder having nothing to do with possession. But that is not what I came away with. All these years after I directed the movie, there's more acceptance to the possibility of possessions than there was when I made the film. This is from an agnostic and from a group of specialists. And now let's delve into the journey with Jesus in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 37 onwards. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions, so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him, and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son over here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him on the ground in convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Sometimes a preacher wishes you could skip from a Sunday morning with an audience like this with teenagers in on a passage like this. But this is the beauty of carrying on preaching through the whole of the scriptures. And this morning, it's so beautiful to see Jesus setting this young man free. Remember the context. This is really important to realize that we had... Peter's confession of faith, where Peter uh, recognized who Jesus was and gave that wonderful confession of faith when Jesus asked, who do people say I am? And then we had uh, the, the, the wonderful transfiguration that uh, we looked at and realized that this was a supernatural encounter that the disciples, some of the disciples were able to witness, bearing testimony to the identity of Jesus. And now we have this situation and he says, the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Don't forget this. And Pastor Ian brought this to us a few weeks back. It's so important to have those rhythms of retreat and ministry, retreat and ministry, retreat and ministry. Jesus did it. We would be smart to do the same. And it looks like there, there's that sense in which Jesus took some rest. You know, they, they, they went and experienced a supernatural transfiguration and then they come down. But again, after that rest comes ministry. There is that normal rhythm of life with Jesus. We rest, we minister. An excess of either of those is toxic for our following of Jesus. Too much rest and inactivity is not what we want. Just activity, no rest. Again, it's not what we want. And I'm mesmerized at the fact that it says that when Jesus came down from the moment, a large crowd met him. This was the beautiful thing about Jesus. Jesus was attracting people to himself. Jesus didn't need to send the disciples out and say, get me a crowd. (laughs) 
He didn't buy some time on social media in order to get likes and hits. He was mesmerizingly attractive to people and very often to broken people, which makes all of us. We mustn't lose our confidence in Jesus being able to do the same. Churches have fallen into a trap of thinking they need to try to attract people because they haven't got enough confidence in Jesus that Jesus can do that. This is a reminder to me this morning, and it's an aside to what we're looking at. We mustn't lose our confidence that Jesus can still attract people to himself. We don't need to do anything in that sense to try to make him look better than he is, because he is already the best. So let's have that confidence in him that he can draw people to himself. And right there in the midst of it, a man in the crowd called out. and He says, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only son. Spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Here comes a man with a heartbreaking request. He comes to Jesus. And frankly, in this man's life, there's a real tragedy. Try to put yourself into his sandals and try to imagine what it would have been like for him. He says, look at my son, my only son, the only child that he had. This is a father's heart breaking for the terrible turmoil that his son is going through. And he describes it. He says, this spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsion so that he foams at the mouth. Everything about the symptoms that he's describing are deeply upsetting, particularly for a parent. He looks at his son when he's going through that and his heart breaks for him. He's filled with a sense of fear. Will this become more aggravated? Will it be getting worse? Is he going to get himself harmed? And then there is that sense of everything about the description of what is happening here, frankly, is really embarrassing. And I can imagine that as, as a, a, the, the whole family was affected because they were probably known locally as the family that had that boy. You know what it's like. I mean, we live in a slightly, slightly different society where perhaps... Uh, we use language that is different and we, we understand so much more about conditions. But some of you probably grew up in the 50s and the 60s when somebody had a disability. And the way they were being pointed at and looked at as if somehow they were a freak of nature. That would have been the case for this family. The whole family would have been affected. That's why he's coming and he's saying, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he's my only son. And with a heartbreaking detail, he describes how his son's life is being ruined. We don't know his age. But frankly, whatever age, going through those kind of symptoms is deeply upsetting. Some of you had, have had in your life the, the unfortunate situation where even a stranger or sometimes even somebody that you love has a fit. It's deeply upsetting. It's frightening. But to have this happening regularly is so embarrassing. And I can imagine they were probably shunned by the local community. They were being the people that everybody was pointing the finger at. 
They were being that family with our boy. And the father is desperate for something to happen. And you know what's frustrating? He says it ever scare, it scarcely ever leaves him. This is permanent. This is not a one-off. This is not once every three months. It seems to be a constant situation that this boy is going through. And the father has had enough. And he's tried everything. He even went to the disciples. He says, I begged your disciples. I begged your disciples. It isn't like, you know, he politely came to the disciples. This is a man that is so desperate because of what he experiences in his own family. That he went and begged the disciples to do something. You would have seen that. You would have been in that situation where you're speaking to a specialist, a doctor, a psychiatrist. And you're saying, a teacher, I'm begging you, do something. I'm at the end of my rope. And even then, disappointments hits him. Because even the disciples of Jesus couldn't do anything about it. And it could have been a situation where the disciples of Jesus could have done something good for other people. But when it came to his boy, somehow, they couldn't do anything about him. So he comes in all his desperation to Jesus. He's probably alienated from the local community. Remember that in Israel at the time, a physical ailment also carried the stigma of a spiritual issue. So probably you, you would remember that Jesus on one occasion heals somebody and people ask the question, who is it that sinned? Is it him or his parents? So those kind of whispers could have gone around as well in the local community. So spiritually speaking, they probably would have been looked down upon. The whole life was a mess. This was a constant problem that was crippling his life and he was crippling the whole family's life. So maybe as a last resort, he comes to Jesus. And hope and expectation, they're high. It's the hope that kills you. And he's expecting something to happen. And you know what it's like when you get to that situation, that's kind of last resort. You're filled with that mixture of hope, but at the back of your mind you're thinking, what if this doesn't work either? There's nowhere else I can go. And that's why the father came with his heartbreaking request. And look at Jesus' heartfelt response in this. Initially, when Jesus responds, he responds with a surprising statement. This is why I keep saying you can't put Jesus in a box. Because if you think you know how he's going to reply, (laughs) think again. So he says, first of all, he starts, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? There's a frustration in Jesus. And I think it's almost that frustration that comes from the heart of Jesus, seeing the damage that Satan does to a human being. And all the pain that the father had for his son became transferred to the heart of Jesus. And Jesus reacted with that sense of deep frustration. And his frustration was to to Satan who caused this. The frustration was with the sin that entered the world and caused the the, the damage that is there. The frustration was with the disciples who didn't have enough faith to heal and the unbelieving environment that this was happening in. It's probably multi-layered. But there was this deep frustration in Jesus and he just bursts out. I'm so frustrated with this. I've, I've had enough. But then he turns his attention to the boy. And he hears the words of the father, and he sees the heart of the father. And he's responding, and he says, bring your son here. This is Jesus. Whenever you come to Jesus, he will never, ever not notice you. He will never ignore you. He will never say you're too bad. 
He will never say, I haven't got enough time. He will never say, oh, I'm busy with somebody else. Jesus hears the plea. And he says, bring the boy. Bring your son here. And then even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. This is a... Something that will always happen because it's a clash of two kingdoms here. It's the kingdom of God represented by Jesus and the kingdom of Satan that was manifested in that particular possession that the boy was going through and the illness that was provoked by that. And the two kingdoms clash. It's almost like, <laughs> you, you know, you could have two armies clashing. You could have uh, two groups of opposing football fans that clash. There was a clash of two kingdoms that is happening there. And as a result of it, the manifestation of it was that the demon, when he was coming towards Jesus, threw him to the ground in, conv- in convulsions. And Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. So Jesus was, in, was not intimidated by this manifestation. He didn't get scared. He didn't get frightened. He didn't kind of lose his peace. He reacted very firmly straight away. And he did those three things. First of all, he rebuked the evil spirit. The second thing is he restored the health of the boy. And then, I love this, returned him to the father. There's a threefold But in a very quick succession, action that Jesus took in order to respond to this. He rebuked the evil spirit. He restored the boy's health straight away. And then he returned him to his father. And there's that beautiful picture of of restoration that Jesus does as he deals with the demonic. And as the evil spirit lives, the boy, he is actually being made well. And he returns to normality. He returns to a family that is so dear to him. To a new beginning. To a new start. To a change in his life. And the reaction of the crowd was amazing. He says, well, everyone was marveling at what Jesus did. They were all amazed at the greatness of God. Once again, this is so important. The miracle isn't the focus. God is. And this is a very important thing. If you ever find yourself in a situation where the miracle in itself becomes the focus, you're in a bad environment. The, the, the focus always needs to be God, not the miracle in itself. And this is what happens in the ministry of Jesus. So we see Jesus' compassion here. We see Jesus' supernatural power, the way he swiftly deals with a demonic influence on the boy. And we see the incredible change that happens with a boy being made well and returned and restored to his father. This is the truth. Jesus can where others can't. I'm sure the father tried everything that was possible to try to cure the boy. He, he probably would have been to the doctors. He would have been to the priests. He would have, he, we know for sure, he definitely asked the disciples. He tried everything. When you try everything, don't give up hope because there is Jesus. And Jesus specializes in the impossible. The impossibility is actually his speciality. When everybody says nothing can be done, Jesus said, let me take care of this. And we see this incredible change from the beginning of a man who comes absolutely broken hearted for his son 
after encountering Jesus, being able to go away with a son that is made well. Let me give us some, some application or some, some, some helpful guidance on, on how we, we, we put this into practice in our own lives. And I want to I split it into two parts, one theological and one pastoral, because this is a very <laughs> sort of thorny subject. So I'm treading um, very carefully on this. First of all, theologically, I think it's really important to realize, truth number one, sickness comes from Satan. Sickness doesn't come from God. God's original design, when he created us, he created imperfection. But the moment Satan derailed that project, that perfect design that God had made, it's almost, if you want to think in terms of a virus that enters a system and, and derails the system, makes it bad, in the same way when sin entered the world through Satan's action, sickness and death came into this world. So that has Satan's trademark on it. It's not God's design. Truth number two, and some of those things I'm going to say, you're going to say, oh, you just said that before. You're contradicting yourself. It is because I'm trying to create a tension, a biblical tension that we need to hold on to. Not every health issue is demonic. Okay, hear me out. So I said to you right at the very beginning, sickness wasn't God's plan, and it originates with sin and Satan. But at the same time, not everybody who is sick, they're sick. Because they're demon-possessed. Got to be careful not to tread that. You would remember that the Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. You would remember that Job was deeply afflicted by Satan with a lot of sickness. Neither of them was demon-possessed. Okay, so we must make sure that we do not stray into identifying every single time somebody has a cough or a sneeze or COVID, or a bad leg, or whatever it is, it is because they're demonized, you know, they're possessed by a demon. That is not true. Yes, Satan is behind the sickness, and that's why sickness came into the world. If you think of the world as a system, and the human body as a system, that's where the virus comes from. But it doesn't mean that we are demon-possessed. Truth number three, and here's I'm going to mess with your heads even more. Some health issues are linked to demon possession. As we would have seen... Very often in the healings and exorcisms that Jesus does, there is sometimes a link. And that's why that question that came to Jesus saying, who sinned? Is it his father or is it him that sinned? So there are situations where that is the case. Where in this um, context here, it actually probably looked like epilepsy, at least in terms of a diagnostic to somebody who wasn't a specialist. But what Jesus said it was a demon behind that. So that's biblical. We must hold on to the fact that sometimes that can be the case, but not always. Truth number four, this is simple. Jesus has power to heal and deliver. This is what this passage is telling me, that in whatever context, Jesus has authority over impossible things that sometimes people give up on and say it can't be cured, it can't be sorted, Jesus can. I hold on biblically to that view that this is what is true. Truth number five, repeating myself a little bit, but it's good to reemphasize, God-fearing people can get sick. Okay? So the sign that you're a godly person isn't the fact that you never get sick. You know, we have some amazing, amazing Christians. I, I, uh, one of my all-time heroes is Johnny Erickson Tada. 
who had a terrible accident through, through each in her, when she was about, I think, 19 years old, and she's been a paraplegic since. And she's one of the most wonderful Christians ever. Never been healed, you know, and she suffers a debilitating um, disability. But it doesn't mean that it is because she's a sinful person or she is a bad person or she doesn't love God. God-fearing people still do get sick. And again, I use the example of the Apostle Paul, who asked three times for a thorn in the flesh that was probably a physical ailment. And Job, uh, again, a godly man, deeply godly man, who uh, experienced incredible um, difficulties in terms of his health. Truth number six, illness can be a consequence of sin. We have a biblical passage in the Old Testament where Miriam and Aaron, the sister and brother of Moses, start to talk behind his back and really backstab him and ask the question, you know, is it really only through Moses that God speaks? But actually the interesting thing, the, 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 the complaint that they had wasn't to do with that. It was to do with Moses' wife. And God hears it. And as a result, God strikes Miriam with leprosy. And they have to wait seven days before she's cleared of leprosy before they can move on. And she did that as a result of Moses actually very kindly and compassionately praying for his sister to be forgiven of that. And actually, she she was afflicted. So we have a biblical example of that. And of course, it's isolated. It's not everywhere, but it is there. So it could be a possibility that sometimes because of sin, as a consequence of sin, then can be illness. Truth number seven. And it's not to do with a demonic, it's to do with healing, but again, it's really important in this context. Not everybody gets healed. Not everybody gets healed. We've got the Apostle Paul asking three times to be healed. And my ultimate example, it's not healing, but it's, it's healing at the ultimate level, is Stephen, one of the deacons in the early church, who was probably one of the godliest, anointed, spirit-filled men that stood up for Jesus and was stoned to death. God didn't deliver him. So we must put that in the framework of our thinking. So where do we live, you know, at the end with this sort of theological framework? It's with a lot of tensions. And there's one thing I want to say to you wholeheartedly is do not buy into formulas. Do not buy into formulas. There are so many movements and there are so many uh, theologies that create formulas that try to put God in a box. And if it's this, it's that. And if it's this, it's that. And if it's that, it's that. It's very dangerous to get into that place. And we must hold on intention, the sense of mystery, because a lot of it we don't quite understand who gets healed? Why did it get healed? What's the source? Is it sin? Is it demonic? Is it not demonic? It's, it's, we have to hold these things incredibly lightly and be very, very careful theologically to stay biblical. So whatever you're saying about something, it has to be in the scriptures. And the other one is to be very careful of formulas because that's a dangerous place to be. So that's kind of theologically. I'm doing this on an absolute Formula One race. The second thing that I want to say is pastoral, and I want to throw some things again pastorally. When it comes to anything to do with both the demonic and healing, we have to hold on to this tension, and this is where we are. Supernatural 
God is able to heal sovereignty. God may or may not, and I don't understand why. And sometimes it's a painful not understanding why. I've lost two incredibly close friends at a young age to absolutely heartbreaking diseases that almost ate them alive. And I don't understand why God didn't heal them and he healed a 60-year-old. <laughs> why didn't he hear, uh, you know, a 40-year-old father of four? And why did you hear a 62-year-old who's lived a fairly good stint? I hope nobody here is 62. <laughs> lived a fairly good stint, you know, and has kids and grandkids and had, had a happy life. And m- my head struggles to comprehend why, but I accept it willingly. So there's that, there's that tension between the supernatural and the sovereignty of God that we must hold, God, keep holding on to with both hands. And that's how we stay healthy pastorally when it comes to healing. When it comes to the demonic, this is the thing that I'm learning again from Jesus. It's very dangerous for us to begin to be diagnostic people. And I've seen people ruin other people's lives by pretending that they knew and starting putting diagnostics according to a chart. If you cough three times, yeah, you've got a demon because that is what it says on the chart. You know, if I, I had a situation where, and please, if you've ever said that to me, I, I don't mean that as a, as a have a go at you. I'm, I'm just saying I think it's a dangerous thing to be, that we have to be very careful. You know, I had a situation where, you know, I came into a meeting and I had a cold. My nose was running. I had a cold, right? It was factual. I had a snot, you know, to prove it. You know, and somebody said, you know, how are you doing? And I said, I've got a cold. My nose is running. And they said, don't put a curse on yourself. Don't say that. I'm not putting a curse on myself. I'm, I'm stating a fact of what is happening. So I think we've got to be really, really careful that we don't buy into this kind of charts where you, if you, this is, you, and we're suddenly becoming spiritual specialists on who's demonized and who's not demonized. Again, the real challenge with this is when it comes to mental health. And frankly, when it comes to mental health, we're, we're probably all there. We all got some mental health fragility and some mental health challenges. And sometimes what I found in my pastoral experience, uh, coming now to, you know, 25 plus years, and with the advantage of having trained as a nurse, is that sometimes things can look the same, but they're not the same. And we've got to be very, very careful when we're putting diagnostics. And we're making judgments. When we're saying to somebody, so-and-so is demonized, we've got to be very, very careful with that. And what we need is discernment, because sometimes it could be the case. I'm not saying it isn't, but it could be the case. But we've got to be very, very careful not to be quick to jump to some formulas and charts in order to say where people are at. I think pastorally, constantly, we need to submit to Jesus. We need to submit to Jesus. All the time we need to say, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. Because, again, we love formulas and we love theologies and we love groups that we belong to where they've got this and that and the other. And it's a dangerous place to be. We constantly need to be rooted in Scripture and always need to say, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. Surrendering to Jesus, not my thinking, not my formulas, not my ideas, not my theology, not that book that I read, not that thing that so-and-so said. But consistently going to the Scriptures and trying to identify what Scripture is teaching us and also asking Jesus 
to be the one that is in charge. I think demon possession is probably actually more prevalent in the church, but it isn't talked about and it isn't known because there's a stigma attached to it. Frankly, if you saw that movie, and actually we were made by one of our tutors, I'd seen it in Bible college, I mean, talk about crazy. One of our tutors who was teaching on this particular subject actually made us watch. And he was, he was very uncomfortable to watch. Uh, I think probably by the end it was only some blokes that were left in watching it because it was very disturbing. But actually subsequent experiences that I have had in terms of demonic, I would say actually that was kind of PG rated compared to what I've seen in real life. It was very real. And I think we need to be careful that actually we don't attach stigma to it. That if somebody has an issue with a demonic, that is something that they have necessarily done wrong. It is something that is done to them. And we need to be incredibly kind and compassionate and helpful to them and not make them feel like there's something wrong with them that is their fault, that would cause them to hide it and push it under the carpet. Because this is biblical. It's biblical. Being demon-possessed is something that we see in the Bible. It's here. And we shouldn't attach any stigma. Jesus doesn't attach any stigma. Jesus doesn't treat the person who's demon-possessed, and there are other examples as well, with anything but dignity, compassion, love, and kindness. We must learn to do exactly the same. We must have that attitude. And do you know what I like? About every single time Jesus encounters a demonic, I didn't study every single, I'm I'm being wrong, not every single time, because I didn't study every single one in particular. But almost frequently, the way Jesus deals with that is not by creating a show and trying to freak people out and trying to attract attention. Almost every single time he says, be quiet, be quiet. And very often I've been in meetings where there was almost a desire to create a big show. (laughs) And I think, biblically, according to Jesus, that's the wrong way to go about it. And I've seen it done the other way as well. With authority in Jesus' name, be quiet. It's not about a show. It's about preserving people's dignity. It's not about embarrassing them in order to make ourselves look really good. Hey, what a cool church we are, because we get freaky stuff happening here. Aren't we great in the supernatural? I think that's the wrong way to go about it. So I think the gentleness and respect and compassion and dignity and the be quiet that Jesus says is absolutely essential. Another one, got two, and we're landing. Don't, don't be intimidated. Don't be intimidated by it. This is biblical. This is biblical stuff. Don't be intimidated by it. If this stuff will happen or you'll come across, don't be intimidated. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. We've got nothing to be intimidated. The disciples were not intimidated. Jesus was not intimidated because we have one who has authority, who dwells in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The same thing that Jesus did to that man is the same Christ that resides in you and me. And therefore, it's not us. I'll be running a mile off, particularly some of the stuff that I'd seen. I'll be running a mile off from it. But Christ in me, gives me the confidence to let him do what he needs to do in order to meet the needs of those people. And don't be naive either. Don't be naive. Don't just think, ah, it's not there. It's just horror stuff. You know, it's stuff that only happens in Africa. You know, 
It's stuff that only happens in that place. It's stuff, no, it's real. So we must again work, you know, in, in kind of, in this tension between, there's not a demon behind every chair and every cough, whoever coughed right last. There's not a demon behind it, but at the same time, it is real. And there are situations, many situations, quietly, even right now, in your lives, in our church, where the demonic is present and at work, and you're just not aware of it, or you didn't give it a name yet. So I would say, don't go attention-seeking either. I've known people who are messing about with this kind of stuff, and they're creating attention-seeking. We were in a, in a, in a large gathering where we, we had seen and heard somebody who had been oppressed by an evil one expressing themselves really scarily because it was the pain that was leaving that person's spirit and that person's body. And other people, in order to attract attention and attention-seeking, you know, they try to copy it. That's what happens when the supernatural happens. You know, people out of a desire to attract attention, they start copying it. But the leader of the meeting actually said, be quiet, stop messing about. That's not real. You're just messing about now. Stop it. It's just important that we have that attitude where we're not intimidated by it, but we're not go looking for it. We are not faking it because that's a dangerous place to be. And actually, it's, it's, it's counter, counterproductive. It's like false miracles. I have known so many people who have been turned off by the supernatural because they've seen lies about miracles. Miracles are real. They may not be as often occurring as some people would like you to believe because they're, they're lying about it. They're creating fake miracles. And unfortunately, they undermine the faith of those people who really want to believe. And this is why I am so, so strong for us not to have any fake stuff, to have the real stuff in which I believe, but not fake stuff that we make up. Last but not least, what do we do with this? If there's anything in your life, you know, that you, you're, you're thinking, well, you know, there's, 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 there's something there. I would say for first, first, first part of call, just come and speak to us as pastors. We're functioning as GPs, and there could be some stuff that we are able to help you with. And also, as good GPs do, sometimes you make a referral to somebody who has more experience. And, and either of those are, are, are valid options. But I think it's really, really important that you... Become aware of it. Let, let me finish with a big question that's going to be on some of your minds because I've had it more times than, than ever. Um, can a Christian be demon-possessed? Don't you love that question? Have you all heard it? Yeah. It's a question that often comes up. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? And it's very, very honest because all of us who are followers of Jesus are probably asking ourselves that question. What happened to that guy? You know, can it happen to me? First of all, let me just say, with, with all good intentions, um, you know, the, the question's probably good, but we're using the wrong terminology here. And in order to explain and give you an answer to that, I'm being very Jewish this morning. In order to give you an explanation, I'm going to tell you a story. Some of you who've been a longer time in, in CFM might have heard it before. It's a true story. It's from Haiti, and uh, as you know, Haiti is kind of very strong in terms of the occult that's happening there. It's a story told by, a, by a, a missionary who was there, who heard it from a pastor, a local pastor there. And basically, this guy was selling a house, and it was a wooden house. It's a very simple house in, in Haiti. 
And as he sold a house, he had a, a, a buyer, and he gave it to the person that wanted to buy it at a fairly cheap price, cheaper than usual. And he said, I'm going to give it to you, but I'm going to stipulate one condition. I want to maintain a hook, a nail, in your house. And I thought, whatever. But he says, that's my nail, that's my hook. The guy thought, well, well, yeah, fine, price is good. You know what it's like, blinded by the good price? Let's go for it. And he bought it. A week in, suddenly this guy comes, knocks at the door, and he says, uh, I, I just want to use the hook in your house. Go, All right, enter in. Just gets a bag with about five rats, and he just hangs them. He says, don't touch. The rats, don't touch the hook. That's my hook. They stay here. In about five months, he drove him out of the house, at a price where he made a profit on the house. Why? Because he constantly kept bringing dead animals into the house. Now, that's where we're trying to answer the question, can a Christian be demon-possessed? Our lives are like that house. And there are areas in our life when we begin to let Jesus come into our life, that Jesus is beginning to take all sorts of junk outside. And we let him take control of our life. But actually, when we become a Christian, there still remains many, many parts of our life that have not been cleaned up. And that's an area, it's not about possession, I'm not going to use that term because I don't think it's helpful. Control. Where Satan still retrains control. In the same way that you would say, well, Jesus, you can come into the lounge, you know, and you can come into the kitchen, and you can come into the dining room, but you can't come into the bedroom. And you can't come. It's the same analogy. There'll be stuff in our life, there's stuff in my life that is still there that maybe I haven't confessed, I haven't given over to Jesus, I'm not giving Jesus total control over my life. That's one avenue through which the influence of the evil one can come into our life. The other one is when you're just opening yourself up to things that aren't right. And pastorally, they're not necessarily in the scripture directly, but pastoral counselors have dealt with people with demonic influences would say they've identified in a lot of cases a similar sort of pattern. It's like, an, like a physical illness. When, when somebody comes with certain symptoms, you ask them, did you do this? Yes. You know, so you've got heart disease. Right. Are you smoking? Yes. You know, are you eating fatty foods? Yes. Are you exercising? No. Well, you know, we kind of get the idea. And it's the same thing. And I've just noted down several things that, you know, people would, 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 would see. And sometimes maybe you're not even aware, but if you've being part of a secret society, you know, like a Masonic lodge, you know, you've made an allegiance to something that wasn't God, and that could be a hook or a nail that's there. Addiction, and in particularly addiction to pornography. Again, it's a hook. If you keep going back to, 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 to that, there's a hook that Satan has in your life that he'll begin to bring his stinking stuff in. Relationships that aren't right, you know, particularly of a sexual nature, you know, where some, some connection happens. There's, you know, they, God says the two shall become one. There's something that's happening. It isn't just a one-night stand. There's something that is going on there. Maybe worshipping false idols, whether it's being ancestors, whether it's being other gods, 
uh, even just rituals that you take part in, you know, that maybe is part of your cultural background. They just do it without thinking. Just think again, because that could be a hook. That could be something that is in there that could be very dangerous. Dabbling in the occult, going to somebody to get you to talk to the dead or to, you know, fortune tell, tell you the future, things like that. They are really dangerous. They are like that hook that is in there that is really important that actually something can be done with it. Or dare I say just simply, and this is where I'm really landing, uh, John can really get back with a band to, to come through. The, the, the last one to say, if there is something that is out of the ordinary, something that is weird, you know, you're just thinking some, something weird's going on. We, we keep getting these illnesses or we keep getting bothered by this or, you know, our kids can't sleep. Or I would just say, you know, don't just, but it could be nothing or it could be very explainable. But it could be something else. And I would just say, don't just sweep it under the carpet and think, ah, it's just nothing. And I would just encourage you to say, okay, let's, let's pray into this. And let's see what the Lord reveals. We're not putting a diagnostic, but we're bringing it before the Lord and see what he says. And then call the pastors maybe, you know, to come and pray. I've had situations where I went in and prayed. I pray over a new house. If somebody moves into a new house, I want to pray over the new house. You know, just want to do that. Might not be anything there, but it might be just a good thing to actually pray over the new house. And just encourage you to be aware, not be freaked out, but be aware. And if you're noticing certain patterns, weird patterns, that you're thinking, this is weird. You know, I, I keep, you know, seeing things, breaking things. There's just something that's unusual here. I would say, okay, let's, let's, let's bring it before the Lord you know, we're not making a judgment and diagnostic of what it is, but let's deal with this. Or maybe some of the things that are mentioned right now, maybe they're part of your past, and maybe you've never had a detox. The important thing when you start following Jesus is to have this detox. We're actually just bringing these things before God, and you're saying to Jesus, Jesus, I kept you out of the bedroom. I've kept you out of the lounge. I want to just say, you're welcome. I'm opening the door, and I want all the garbage, all the stuff that's old, that maybe I've never told you about, never confessed, never... God prayed, I want it out. I want the junk out. We're in the spring. Best time. I love going to the tip right now and just taking all my rubbish out there. This is what we do spiritually. We're just taking the rubbish out. You need to, don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be scared. But it's important to do that. And this is why I, I, I think the Lord made it, brought this passage before us. Right. Let's stand up. I'm going to pray. And then the guys are going to lead us. Jesus, I thank you that you are victorious over Satan, sin, and death. And I want to thank you that you have come to set us free. This is what you said. This is your agenda. And that has to do with our whole being, whether it's our salvation, being set free from sin and the dominion of Satan of our lives. But also it has to do with the freedom in day-to-day -day life, whether that's illness or any sense of oppression from the enemy. And this morning we want to say, the first step is we want to say, Jesus we give you control of our life. We declare that you are Lord. You are King. You are the one that controls us. And we want to give everything of ourselves. There's no 
off-limit area in our lives. Every single thing, even the secrets, even the things we're ashamed of, even the things that we feel scared of, even the things that we find difficult. We want to just give them under your authority. We want to say, Lord, we want to live as your free people. So we're coming before you and declaring your lordship over our lives. Help us to live every day in that freedom as a spirit and the scriptures lead us to walk with you. Amen.